Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. And so we begin another week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you for being with us. I hope you had a relaxed, safe, healthy weekend. Um, we're ready to go. We're seven-plus weeks now away, just seven weeks, actually, away from the November 3rd election. Early voting starts well before that. And I think in at least some counties, Cobb, for one, uh, they're already starting to—they're setting up their— uh, uh, locations where you can drop off an absentee ballot. I think Cobbs opens a drop-off site on Tuesday, I believe. I'll look into that to make sure, and maybe Jim Galloway, who's uh, with us today, will be able to tell me whether I'm right about that. Um, before I introduce the panel, uh, just a couple of thoughts about the conversation today. It's no surprise to any of you out there that Georgia has been in the national spotlight far more often, probably, than most of us wish uh, this year, uh, the killings of Ahmad Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, uh, led to uh, national headlines and dismay expressed around the country about those two deaths. Um, the fact that we became the, uh, the first or one of the very first states to open up for business after uh, Governor Kemp said that the lockdown had to be lifted so that uh, the economy could be jump-started again, the chaos of the primary election on June 9th. And then, of course, most recently, we captured national headlines with the primary runoff victory of Marjorie Taylor Greene up in the 14th Congressional District. She's a Republican and a very enthusiastic supporter of QAnon. Um, The seat was already going to go to Greene, most likely, anyway, uh, because it's a heavily Republican district. But over the weekend, uh, we learned her Democratic opponent dropped out. We're going to talk about that uh, in a little while and what it means to have Green headed to Congress. Uh, and uh, you heard it in our headlines at the very top of the show. Uh, we're winding down the census here, and Georgia has one of the lowest response rates in the country. We're tied for second to last, and there are huge implications to not having a more complete census count. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So having said all that, let's get to our panel. It's Monday. Jim Galloway, my partner on the show on Mondays and Fridays, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Dead Tree edition of the paper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hey, Jim, it's getting. Uh, we're really getting down to it, Jim. Yeah, yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, this is this we have now spent an official six months in quarantine. Is it? Is that true? I, you know what? I have. I yes, it is. I have a. I have a sign up on my wall that I keep adding to, and I just while the introduction was uh, being put up, put up week twenty six this week sheltering in place. Half a year, Jim. That's yeah, astonishing. Yeah. And, and to answer your question, uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, says ballots are going to be, be uh, begin to hit voters. They'll, they'll be pushed out of the, 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 uh, the company that's, uh, that's putting together the ballots on September 18th. That's, that's this week. Oh, okay. So the ballots will be available and people will be getting them and we'll be able to turn them in relatively quickly. Okay. Thank you for uh, clarifying that. Patricia Murphy 
is uh, with us again today. Patricia is a journalist, a columnist for uh, Roll Call. Her and her columns are syndicated there. She's uh, also been posting columns in USA Today a bit and um, writes for Garden and Gun, the fun part of her job, getting to write feature pieces for that wonderful, wonderful culture magazine out of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Patricia, how are you holding up? You've got your boys at home with you, I assume. Are they going to school? What's the situation there at your house? We are doing a little bit of in-person school, a little bit of at-home school. Um, We've learned a lot from the spring, mostly that we need our teachers desperately. And I think, honestly, I do think the teachers and schools have learned (laughs) a lot from the spring. And so there's been a major focus on um, improving that experience for everybody. And I give them all the credit in the world. And I can't say enough about our teachers and our principals and God love you. Thank you so much. (laughs) So yes, we're doing great. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're glad to have you with us today. Uh, Professor Audrey Haynes, Dr. Audrey Haynes, Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia, back with us again today. Uh, You know, if you listen to the show regularly, that among other things, Dr. Haynes created the Applied Politics Program at UGA, which trains uh, students, uh, prepares them, really, for careers in politics. Um, and Audrey, you're, you're teaching that class again this semester in person, right? Yes, under our new HyFlex uh, program. And I would also note that it is our fifth anniversary. So we're celebrating all of the students who have gone through the program and are now working in politics across the state and the nation. Uh, congratulations on that fifth anniversary. Although Galloway, I don't know if we really want to praise her for putting all those people out into the political uh, community out there. Well, at least they're they're, they're, <laughs> they're they're coming out a little more educated. That's right. There you go. No, really, congratulations, Audrey. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you. That's great. And thank you for being here. We are also really thrilled to welcome for the first time to Political Rewind, Dr. Kurt Young. He is a political science professor and the chair of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University. Um, Dr. Young, you're, you did your undergraduate work, I think, at University of Florida, um, which Galloway and Audrey Haynes will not hold against you for right now, at least. Um, and uh, you came to Atlanta where you did your, your PhD work right right here at Clark Atlanta. Is that right? Absolutely. And I'm going to hold everybody to that. Everyone heard, heard it uh, public, right? They're not going to hold that against me. So, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I did. I, um, I, I, I completed my graduate studies here at Clark Atlanta University, both in the Department of uh, Political Science, and I did my MA work in uh, uh, African and African American Studies, is what it was called at that time. Uh, left and, and taught for almost 10 years at University of Central Florida down in Orlando, and um, came back to yeah. be chair back in 2013. Happy to be back. Well, we're you're working. Let me ask you one quick question about your work. I was looking uh-huh. at your website, and you you have a reference to the fact that you are working on something, a project called the Atlanta School of Black Political Science. Just I, That's an interesting uh, thing. What does that mean exactly? Oh, I appreciate you asking that question. So you may recall, I'm going to try to sum this up in a nutshell. You may recall maybe back in the 1960s and the 70s, you, you, you saw the emergence of 
black studies movements in the various disciplines, right? So you would see the emergence of a, uh, a type of uh, black studies approach to history, black studies approach to sociology. At that time, you see the rise of the an association called the Association of, of uh, um, uh, uh, Black Psychologists. Well, the same thing happened, Bill, in political science. You had the emergence of uh, what some refer to as a, a new discipline or emerging discipline within the uh, ranks of political science, which of course is multidisciplinary, right? You, uh, you, you have many different subfields, uh, um, um, uh, as Arby w- w- would uh, attest, in the discipline. And so what you saw emerging at Clark Atlanta University at that time, Atlanta University, was a specific focus of the graduate program in general and the, and the doctoral program in particular, led by our dear uh, chair at the time, Mac H. Jones, who's uh, retired now. Uh, still here in the Atlanta area, and there was emergence of a particular focus in political science that tried to understand questions of power, uh, questions of uh, uh, of marginalized groups, uh, and the perspectives that come to the discipline from those uh, sections of the of the political discourse, and, and tried to institutionalize that. And so we are trying to capture that now in the context of our research. Yeah, it, that's. I'm. Um, thank you for explaining that. It strikes me the time is absolutely correct for doing just that. Uh, so thank you. It'll be interesting to see how your work on that uh, progresses. All right. Um. Let's get into uh, conversation. Jim Galloway. Uh. Just for a couple of minutes here. Um. I was struck by the front page story in your newspaper, the AJC. Uh. The headline is "State Rate of Census Response Diminishes." And uh, the article points out, and I'll read the lead, Georgia is tied for second to last among the 50 states for its percentage of households counted for the 2020 census, the decennial process that helps determine congressional representation and $1.5 trillion in federal funding. Uh, Jim, as of Friday, 83% of Peach State households had been counted. That sounds like a high percentage, uh, but in fact— were the second worst, tied for second worst in the country. And the article goes on to point out that um, the U.S. House Oversight Committee released a report about this warning that Georgia could lose $75 million in annual federal health care, job training, and education funding if there's just a 1% undercount. So if we don't get our act together, Jim, we're going to be losing millions of of dollars in federal money, not to mention how it could affect redistricting. Yeah, you're you're kind of tempted to say, thank God for Alabama at this point. Uh, that's that's the only state that's worse that's 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 doing worse and and the problem the the problem is 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 partly p- pandemic and it's partly the state of 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 rural georgia uh, uh the best states the, the the best counties that have in, in in terms of their response have been uh forsyth county and uh on the on the on the north side and Fayette County on the on the south side, and and both of them are heavily suburbanized areas. Uh, plenty of internet access. The, the worst, uh, I think, in, in with a response rate in, in the twenty percent zone is Hancock zoning, uh, Hancock County. Uh, it's near Milledgeville. It's uh, eighty five hundred people, but almost no internet access whatsoever. Uh, and and quite frankly, a lot of suspicion of 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 government inquiries. And what you've had is you've had you've had the the, the Census Bureau being forced to decrease its 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 foot traffic, uh, its its door knockers, 
uh, that go go door to door to make sure everybody's counted simply because of the pandemic. And and in in certain places, you don't have the infrastructure uh, set up to replace that. So um, just to uh, uh, say more about that, the uh, Census Bureau says that over 61 percent of Georgia households responded on their own online, as you suggest, Jim, as many of us did. I responded the first week I got the uh, census uh, document in the mail, 22% counted by going door to door. So uh, let me ask, Audrey, there's something a little counterintuitive about this to me. Um, I, I understand, you know, we also know to add to this, the story that the, the White House, the Trump administration wants to cut the census short. By law, the census is required by December 31st to turn in its its fig- figures. Uh, but the uh, the uh, White House and they started late because of the pandemic. But the White House wants to cut it off at the end of the month, and there's a concern that minority uh, uh, residents of states across the country are not going to end up being reflected in the cons. Well, let's just go to that first, and then I'll talk to you about what I think is counterintuitive here. So the idea is that maybe if you short the number of minorities you count, you're going to have a major impact on redistricting in the future, federal aid to those communities. Go ahead, Audrey. Well, and that's right. And that's, um, I just had this conversation recently with Rebecca DeHart, who is the CEO of Fair Count. She was actually talking to students in our class about this. And there are real concerns about shortchanging those rural communities primarily. And whether it is politically motivated at this point in time, you know, for Georgians, the most important thing is that data is critical. It's not only critical politically, as you note, potentially, but businesses use that information. And in addition to to determining hundreds of programs and allocations that go to help uh, programs in those rural communities, businesses look at that for where they're going to place their businesses. It is a huge, a huge um, endeavor. And most states will spend money to actually encourage uh, response and allocate um, resources to uh, bolster that. So, you know, without really knowing whether it's politically motivated or, I mean, who knows, it's, it's very difficult to say, given what we know, but it can have political implications, but it can have real social capital costs, too. Uh, Kurt and then Patricia, on top of that, we know that the president, who was already rebuffed in court on this issue, is nevertheless trying to figure out a way to uh, reject uh, the census numbers that would be counting uh, non-citizens. He does not want undocumented residents of states across the country to be included, and, and he's still trying to find a way to do that. How worried are you, Kurt, about what we're going to see coming out of this census? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's certainly a concern, and, and Audrey's right. The writing is on the wall. We're seeing—I'm sorry there. Yeah, uh, Audrey's right. The, the, the writing is on the wall. We, we, we can kind of tell where this is heading, and uh, the efforts coming out of Washington— to identify certain segments of the American population, documented or otherwise, uh, who ordinarily would be calculated in the census count. Uh, uh, And it's a two-way street. On the one hand, there is an understanding uh, that this may be developing itself as a a type of policy posture. And at the same time, there 
the policy or at least the uh, articulation of the policy resonates in those communities, right? So you're beginning to find individuals uh, who are already parts of communities that had traditionally been undercounted, right? So we know that there's a, ten, there's a, there's a trend here, right? There's a historical trend here uh, where some communities, particular communities of color, had dealt significantly with the problem of the undercount during the census-taking uh, uh, periods. Uh, now you add to that this perception uh, that uh, uh, not only might the census uh, uh, process become sort of uh, 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 have a negative impact, right, may, may even threaten communities, um, you also have uh, a broader climate in the country uh, that speaks to those who may not be considered uh, American citizens and the kind of hostility there, too. Uh, so we, you kind of have a, co a convergence of, of a number of factors here, some historical and, and some um, folding uh, before our very eyes right now. Pat Patricia, weigh in on this. Well, I would add to that. My argument is that this particular census needs to be left open for a longer period of time and not a shorter period of time. And if you focus specifically on families with school-aged children, if your child is not required to be in school every day, then you may or may not be in your home. Some families that are highly mobile, maybe they can't pay their rent. Maybe they can't justify paying rent if their kids don't need to be in a certain school district for six months at a time, may have moved. So you have highly mobile populations, um, which are mostly minority communities who I think are at a severe disadvantage right now of being under undercounted because they simply may not be in their homes receiving their mail. They may have let go of their leases and no longer getting their mail forwarded to them. Um, so I think that this would be an area where Congress could get involved. The Constitution requires the census count. It is that important to the function of our government and our democracy. And so I think it's essential right now to think about stretching out this time longer and not truncating it, as the president has suggested. Yeah, uh, Bill, I mean, there's with with the Trump administration advocating a, a, a closing off, the, the, an early closing off of the deadline, you know, you, 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 there, there is a suspicion of political motive here. But, but to me, the, the political uh, – it's not always uh, – the, the political implications of this are not always uh, – uh, uh, they, they don't go as planned. Okay, let's, let's, take, let's take rural Georgia right now, which we, we've already asserted is, is being vastly undercounted. What that means is that you know, when you get into political redistricting, when the, the, the drawing of, of new district lines, whether for Congress or for state legislatures, in particular – uh, state legislatures. Those may, that that means those those people will get fewer representatives in the state legislature. Those representatives right now are by and large Republican, and so you could you could see a, a real dip in in uh, rural influence in in the state capital as a result of this. Mister Galloway, you just uh, described why I was suggesting there was a counterintuitive. A factor involved in the administration trying to shut it off sooner. It is rural communities, Trump communities, which could end up being underrepresented. Although, Kurt, it is certainly also true that urban minority communities could pay a price if they're not counted either, Kurt. Right, and, and, and it becomes a calculation. I, I think Jim's point is well taken. It becomes a calculation. Let's play it out. If indeed we know that the uh, uh, the policy may result in an undercount 
in rural areas, but an estimated increasingly larger undercount in urban areas or other areas that are perceived to be the bastion of the uh, of the political opposition, then you know, one could make the case that it is a risk worth taking. Uh, it is a, a, a type of give and take that may necessarily uh, achieve the uh, ultimate goal, right? Um, because I think there are a number of goals at play here. One of them has to do with uh, a type of uh, minimizing the uh, access to the political apparatus by those who are considered to be uh, uh, non-citizens or undocumented. Um, but there's also a, a long-term view as to how uh, the country, one envisions, actually uh, uh, manifests itself. All right. Um, let's move on from that. We'll check back. Amelia and Sam and I are talking about getting a census show on the air uh, sometime relatively soon, and we are going to work toward that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But let's move on to another subject. Um, Patricia Murphy, uh, <laughs> you know, the, as I said in our, the introduction to the show, we've a lot of attention paid to the 14th District Congressional race where QAnon advocate Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, appears to be headed to Congress. It's obviously a very red district. There's no reason to think a Democrat could win up there. But Kevin Van uh, Osdell, the Democrat who was in the general election contest against her, uh, made it even uh, less likely a Democrat could find any way to slow her down when he announced this weekend he was dropping out of the race. It's a it's a peculiar story. He's dropping out. He's going through a divorce. His wife apparently is getting custody of the house, and he's decided to move in with parents, I think, out of state, and therefore can't continue to have a plausible campaign. Um, so it's, first of all, Patricia, it's just a really odd situation. Well, it was so odd and made even more odd. This news broke at the end of the week in the afternoon. And uh, his initial, um, Mr. Van Ostel's initial statement said, I can't tell you why I'm dropping out. It will only ever be known to me and my family. And other than that, it's personal. And it's, that's all I can say. And so immediately, yeah. conspiracy theories because this entire race has been framed by conspiracy theories conspiracy theories <laughs> it exploded on twitter and said he's been threatened his family's been threatened uh he's been threatened by QAnon. what's going on um and so he did find himself in need of coming out and saying okay well i'm sure this probably was personally embarrassing um so well actually i'm getting divorced i have to move out i can't afford another house i'm moving in with family it's out of state um, in that statement, also his campaign aide said he thought about trying to run from out of state and they said, no, that's really not going to be possible. Um, so the scramble now that Democrats are trying to figure out, can they do a write-in? Can you do anything? You can't have his name come off that ballot. That's, that's not legal. Um, and I, I think for Marjorie Taylor Greene at this point, um, everything she says from here on out will determine her future and the future of how that district bears in Congress. She did immediately reach out to him, to Mr. Van Osdell on Twitter and say, best wishes to you. Um, she needs at this point to pivot very quickly to becoming a serious, respectable um, uh, and uh, dependable representative for that district because it, it would be up to Republicans to seat her on committees 
to um, give that district full representation. If they feel like she is too out there, somebody like Steve King, it's their choice not to seat her on committees. So um, it, I'll be fascinated to see um, Ms. Taylor Green's next steps and how she uh, begins to um, conduct her campaign and, and conduct herself from here on out because she's in a very different position now. You know, Audrey, I think Patricia makes a pretty... Yeah, go ahead. You just go ahead. Well, I was going to follow up with that in the fact that, you know, this circumstance arose primarily because, you know, the candidate uh, basically volunteered to be a placeholder in a uh, district that went, you know, I think Trump's margin was like 50 percent. It is a generally an R27 plus 27 seat. So, you know, not only was the campaign uh, very, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of non-professional. But there was no money initially until actually Marjorie Taylor Greene won. And then there was an influx of money who came in that came in. But, you know, they didn't really plan for this because the, the timing is awful for the Democratic Party. In fact, you know, we've seen the deadline for I believe for a write in candidate is over. The deadline to actually replace him on the ballot has passed. So basically, you're going to have, again, as everyone is saying, Marjorie Taylor Greene as the only candidate uh, who is competing on the ballot. And people have responded to that. In fact, Representative Collins, who's also running for the Senate seat, was one of the first ones to tweet and congratulate her um, for that, uh, that office as the winner. But I also want to add, this is not something um, – Patricia makes a good point about will, it, will she pivot – she did send out uh, a, a nice tweet, and there have been a couple of indications that she's questioning parts of QAnon conspiracy. But at the same time, there are other QAnon-linked candidates who have won their primaries in places like Florida and California. So she's not in isolation. And Trump has even said something like, you know, those QAnon people, hey, they like me. So they can't be all bad, right? So we'll have to watch and see what happens. Well, more than that, the president congratulated Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, said she was a rising star. Jim Galloway, um, so it's one thing. I think this point about how she now starts talking about uh, the issues that Patricia brought up and Audrey seconded really does become important for, for one reason. It strikes me it is one thing for the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, in the heat of an election campaign to be relatively benign in the way he speaks about her. But in January, when the election is over, I mean, I understand House members never stop running, but nevertheless, in January, Kevin McCarthy's approach to her could change if she continues with this kind of wild conspiracy uh, scenario that QAnon has, and he may not be as willing, having won re-election himself, to be quite as open to her having a decent committee assignment. Am I? You think I'm right about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you are. are. But uh, let, let me make a couple of quick points. On the same day that this happened, which was 9/11, by the way, and she has been a 9/11 yeah. do- doubter in the past. Uh, but uh, Tom Graves announced that he was resigning his office, his his seat in the 14th district almost immediately, and this this kind of contributed to the the conspiracy uh, theories that jumped up immediately. Uh, so so that that seat will be vacant for for you know, for, for two or three months. 
uh, before green is, is is worn in. The other thing, you know, look, Van Osdell was 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 a, a a rookie politician. He didn't have any funding. But what he did was he, he continued he 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 he, met, he forced Green to continue to get out on the road and make her statements, which other Democrats then mm-hmm. could could pick up and 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 fire at at, at people like uh, like like Karen Handel or David Perdue or 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 Doug Collins and say, or do you really agree with this woman? Uh, and 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 make them answer for her. Uh, it's it's interesting that David Perdue has yet to say a single public word about Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. good or bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kurt, I'm going to give you the last word on this, and we got to get to a break. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting uh, point that was just being made about how she may pivot. I'm not so optimistic about that, and and uh, here's why: if this thing plays out the way that it we think it has, and if it reflects some of what we saw occur in 2018, what we may see is as a type of uh, continuation of the president's position on the support of QAnon, or at least the embrace of QAnon as they embrace him, uh, you may find that this becomes an important position of his campaign going forward. Uh, Of course, a lot depends on whether or not he uh, is successful in November, but let's assume that he is successful. Um, I can't imagine that he would become successful by uh, rejecting, uh, and we know QAnon, the QAnon phenomenon is multidimensional, right? And certainly one of them, one of the many dimensions is this this kind of uh, full support of Trump. In fact, they see the president as a sort of a a savior fighting for the uh, the, the the war against um, evil. Uh, against corruption and and against these these uh, uh, elitist forces in in the American government. Now, if indeed that's correct, uh, uh, that that's what they believe, and certainly we've heard the president take that line in 2016, we shouldn't assume that he's going to reject that line, which means that that becomes a strong position that he takes going forward. All right. Uh, Thank you for that. We're going to have to get to a break. As we do, let me point out that um, Vice President Pence was scheduled to go to a fundraiser in Montana. And uh, when when the White House learned that, in fact, two of the some of the hosts of that fundraiser were, in fact, QAnon supporters, the vice president's office changed his schedule. He is no longer going to that rally, which is an interesting uh, uh, development. All right. We've got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. We'll do that when we come back from these messages. Patricia Murphy, Dr. Audrey Haynes, Dr. Kurt Young, and Professor Jim Galloway, Professor of Journalistic Knowledge of Politics, Jim Galloway, uh, with me today. Jim, Amy Totenberg, federal judge Amy Totenberg, has been in the center of many of, there are any number of lawsuits, as we know, surrounding the election coming up in November. And by the way, tomorrow we're going to devote an entire show to talking about what's going on with the lawsuits and all the other uh, issues surrounding our election moving forward. Mark Nisi, the AJC reporter who's been covering those things very closely, uh, will be with us, um, and so will our own Stephen Fowler, who also has been on top of this, will be a couple of the people who will join us for that show, and you're going to hear a lot about what's happening in very specific detail. But, Jim, in the meantime, let's talk about what Amy Totenberg did. 
Amy Totenberg has a uh, lawsuit in front of her, which is pretty broad in scope. Uh, one of the things, probably the most dramatic thing it would, it's asking for, is that the state abandon the brand new computers and vote with hand-marked ballots. That's not likely to happen. Totenberg has rejected that idea previously. But she did say that she may very well insist that precincts, polling places around the state, all have copies, paper copies of voter information, registration information, that sort of thing, perhaps even updated to show whether they, in fact, voted absentee. I'm not quite sure how current those voter papers might be, Jim. Right, right. I, I think what we've uh, – you'll remember last week that uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, got up in a, in a press conference at the state capitol and said we had a 1,000 people who had cast double ballots. Well, I mean – and it turns out in the, 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 the Secretary of State's office is somewhat conceding this point that, that what happened – happens is that say say you have you have mailed in your absentee ballot but you don't know whether it's actually been counted so you go to your precinct on election day they're supposed to look you up on 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 this database and say what and and tell you whether you voted or not and if you haven't well then mm-hmm. you uh, if if it says you haven't then you you go ahead and, and cast your vote uh there, there's questions as to whether uh, whether that that database is accessible. Again, we, we we're talking about internet access in 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 all of Georgia, uh, immediately accessible, uh, and whether it's also updated. And and uh, Raffensperger's people said they are going to try to do a better job of making sure that the poll workers are educated in how to deal with that. And I, I think what what Judge Totenberg was was suggesting is well, get a hard copy to every precinct. It's not that hard. You hit print. Uh, and and you just feed the paper, and and suddenly you have a a list of all the voters in in your area. Uh, so that 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 would that would seem to me uh, to be a reasonable backup right there. Yes, I uh, totally agree with what Jim is saying too. I mean, the positive is that you know from the Secretary of State's office, it seems that they are uh, trying to be responsive in this case, and I, I would argue that um, Judge Totenberg has really invested a lot of time and effort and research and has her rulings have a lot of um, validity to them. And, you know, in the past we've had uh, paper copies. I mean, I remember voting. I'm old enough to remember when we would go to your voting precinct and they would look up your name in a a big sheet of uh, a pad of paper and there you are. So it's not something that is egregiously difficult to do, but and it is a positive compromise, I believe. And it's, it, 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 it's not happening in a vacuum, right? Um, <clears throat> although we know the members of the, of judiciary, the judiciary uh, must always maintain some level of uh, uh, separation from the political forces of the moment. But this is not happening in a vacuum. On the one hand, there is the, uh, what would you say, post-2016 post voter suppression discussion. That's only going to continue to, to manifest itself. Uh, and then at the same time, there's an increasing discussion around doubts about the legitimacy of the election coming up. And so uh, uh, this, is, this is a serious discussion. And as you started the program, Bill, we run the risk of having the state of Georgia once again in the spotlight for some not-so-glorious reasons. 
Yeah, I think also we have to just think about the recent history of the long lines that we've seen of what voters have had to stand through five, six hours, which is totally crazy. Um, I think this would, first of all, just give poll workers a speedy tool. So easy. Just look you up. It's not hard. Um, And then also uh, when the president himself has suggested if you don't think your ballot got there, just go do it in person. You know, it was his idea. But it's not the craziest idea in the world. You can imagine people saying the mail's slow. I, I don't know if it got there. I've been told this is the most important election of my lifetime. Democracy's on the line. I'm just going to go make sure it happens. Um, that's not uh, felonious and it's not um, out of the bounds of a logical thought process. So I think this would um, give poll workers the tools to make sure that uh, does not happen if it's already been counted. We want everyone's votes counted. Um, And it would also give people a sense of knowing, oh, good, you've already got my ballot. Great. You know, this is simple. Seems like cheap, easy. That's a seems easy to me. Yes. I want to add, too, that, you know, we have seen some positive things happen in the state as well. And one of them is um, that unlike some states like Ohio, where the legislature is um, uh, resistant to uh, online absentee ballot requests, we got that. You know, we just got that. And I, and, um, I recall when the Secretary of State's office was, um, you know, testing it out. That is a very positive step for the state and, and another area where they're being more responsive than a lot of other states are being at this point in time. Okay, I want to move on, but very quickly, really quickly, Jim. I it, what the other thing that I kind of sort find sort of interesting about Judge Totenberg's uh, uh, language again, she's done this more than once, is to say she has, she's kind of made it clear that this argument that the computer machines that are being used that the voting rights groups say we should we should go back to paper balloting. She's never said she thinks that's a bad idea. What she keeps saying is, well, it's too close to an election to do it. I mean, it's interesting that she's kind of left the door open in on computer balloting versus paper balloting. Right. It's not. I mean, she's 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 not making a policy decision. She's making a logistical decision right. here, mm-hmm. and 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 yes. the idea that yes. the idea that you're that 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 you would suddenly switch to yet another form of voting. I mean, we we were supposed this was supposed to be all voting machine. Uh, 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 this time last year, we we we've switched to paper ballots with the absentees, and now we've got a hybrid system. To think that you're gonna you're gonna dump a you know a, a multi million dollar. Uh, uh, system is is kind of far fetched, and and quite frankly, judges don't like to go that deep into 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 the doings of the legislature. This was a a, a legislative decision, uh, uh, a for a formal formal vote by the state legislature. So I, I don't think she wants uh, uh, judges don't like to overturn things like that. Yeah. All right, uh, Jim, as long as you got the ball in your court, uh, just let's just spend a couple minutes on it. I, I thought a really interesting story that our friend Charlie Hazlett, uh, who d- uh, writes the blog Trouble in God's Country, uh, put up last week. Um, he, his headline is COVID-19 death rate in Kemp counties, now tops that in Abrams counties, case rate trend lines also converging. Here's the lead. Here's a little breaking news on the coronavirus front. The COVID-19 death rate is now higher collectively in the Georgia counties that voted for Governor Brian Kemp than in those that went for Stacey Abrams. What's more, the difference in the rate of confirmed cases is narrowing dramatically. So, Jim, 
significant because um, we have always assumed that COVID was having a much bigger toll on people in urban, mostly Democratic communities. And now Charlie, citing data from the New York Times, says that's not true anymore. It's it's more uh, 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 widespread now in red areas of the state. What are the implications of that? Right. Well, what he, what he did was he took, I think, uh, 120 some odd uh, counties that, that went 130, for, for Kemp. 130, I think. Uh, 30, 30, 130 and that went for Kemp in 2016 and matched those against uh, the metro Atlanta counties that went for Abrams. Uh, and and what's interesting there, a couple of interesting things there. Uh, number one is is it's th- this is the per capita death rate, uh, which where which uh, which uh, is, is being matched. But he's saying that the raw total of deaths uh, since 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 midsummer, they've begun creeping up in in rural Georgia far faster than they have in in metro Atlanta. So you could very soon have the death rate, the the, the raw death rate uh, in rural Georgia exceeding that of of metro Atlanta. And what this is, clearly it underlines uh, the fact that that the healthcare infrastructure in in rural Georgia is just so, so darn tenuous that uh, that you're having some fairly horrific outcomes, uh, uh, and it's what what what, he, what Charlie has done is he's he's really what he's he's documented kind of a, a swing. You can you can almost watch it in real time move from county to county to county from East Georgia, uh, in uh, Southeast Georgia in Albany where we we know things started, and it's kind of shifted it shifted east. Uh, I'm sorry, in West Georgia with Albany, and then it shifted east to, uh, toward the coast. Uh, it's uh, yeah. it's it's a really a kind of some uh, an interesting piece of uh, demographic research. Uh, again, Kurt, you you get the last word before a break. Sorry to say, but uh, again, though, this also suggests if it's if it's happening in red counties at a faster pace, uh, those are the same people who often are uh, susceptible to the president's message that the virus really isn't that bad. It's it's often Republicans who do not want to take the precautions because they believe the president when he says this thing will disappear like a magic. All right, rule of unintended consequences, right? Um, and and I, th- I think it speaks to the problem here. It speaks to the problem that we really don't know. We don't know what we have on our hands. We don't know what populations it affects more than others. We don't know uh, what the fall uh, beholds. Um, and I suspect that uh, the piece that was written is onto something. Uh, I think there's yet to be learned about uh, where this is actually heading. All right, let's do this. We get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with our last segment of Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, an interesting story uh, sprung up around uh, Republican State Representative Chuck Efstration from uh, up in Gwinnett County, Decula. Um, he won a lot of praise, uh, justifiably so, for uh, uh, sponsoring and working hard to pass the hate crimes bill, which finally, after many years of sitting without anybody wanting to pass, well, without being able to find a majority to pass it, he finally managed to make that happen. And he won praise from Democrats and Republicans alike. But suddenly, now, he's facing some pretty strong criticism 
uh, because, as you know, he has been sending out or, or putting up online campaign materials that show him posed with uh, people like Calvin Smyrie, the Democratic leader of the House, the Legislative Black Caucus chair, Karen Bennett. He's made the suggestions they support his House race against the Democrat Nikita Hemingway. So he got praise from them. But now there's a lot of anger on the Democratic side that Efstration is trying to uh, create the impression that he has their support in what could be a pretty hot uh, state legislative race up there. Yes? Yes. He is in a uh, contested seat in a rapidly changing county. Um, So you think about the needle that Efstration has to thread and... um, keep his uh, Republican voters, but also certainly be reaching out to Democrats. He'll need Democrats to vote for him. And he legitimately certainly was the leader on that hate crimes bill. He introduced it well before the Ahmed Aubrey case um, that ended up uh, speeding its passage. Um, and he has been a leader on other bills that I think uh, he, the minority community has worked with him on and um, certainly did praise his legislative work, Calvin Smyrie in particular, in the NAACP, because that was important legislation. Um, but to use a person's uh, likeness, to use their picture and a quote from them on campaign materials without their permission um, is not illegal, but it's not good politics because that person is going to yeah. come out and say, hey, I don't endorse this person. Um, so I I look at that as an unforced error, although maybe he did get his point across by saying, hey, now everybody knows I sponsored this bill and it was important to the minority community. Um, But it uh, certainly has invited criticism where it just wasn't necessary. And uh, Jim, we've had Chuck's been on our show. We praised him for his work on issues like that. But you point out something, too. You point out that if Strachan does win re-election to that seat, he's very uh, uh, adamant now about working on a, getting rid of the citizen's arrest statute in Georgia. And he's going to need the support of people like Calvin Smyrie, of people like Karen Bennett, to advance that bill. And if he's really irritated them over his campaign strategy here— uh, he might have some serious fences to mend. Right, right. It's 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 not not only citizens' arrest, but the 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 stand your ground statute that Georgia has. Yeah. Uh, there there are, you know there there are a lot of concern arising out of the the Ahmaud Arbery uh, uh, case that that uh, require addressing, and you know it it could get very very ticklish, especially if if Democrats make some substantial gains in the general in the general assembly in November. Uh, uh, the other thing, but I, just I, at some point you do have to sit back and just marvel at at, at what's going on here in Gwinnett. Uh, you know, a bastion of of white Republican <laughs> politics, and suddenly you have a politician realize that he needs a biracial. Uh, uh, alliance to win. Uh, I've, that's you, you know you, you can't you can't you can't see anything but good in that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Nikita Hemingway will be on our show on uh, Friday since Evstration's uh, done it as well. Audrey, real quick. Well, I was going to say um, Jim's absolutely right, and we're seeing that not only in Evstration's district, but in other places across the state too. I have been astonished at some of the. Um, commercials that I've seen from state representatives that are avoiding controversial issues 
Um, we, we see it around our area as well. So that's a trend and indicative of what's going on in the state. All right. Um, we're running low on time, but I want to ask you, Kurt, about another a story that I read actually in the AJC that I thought was interesting. The state election board has kind of wrapped the knuckles of a Republican voter in Roswell who walked into his polling place wearing a MAGA hat, a red MAGA hat on Election Day uh, in violation, uh, the state board said, of the uh, regulations which prevent campaigning at a polling place. He's not being fined. There's no other punishment, but he's being sent a letter advising him that what he did is illegal. Okay, it's a tiny little story, but Kurt, I just can see a November 3rd wave of MAGA hats going to... This story is going to spark an army of MAGA hat-wearing voters going to polling places, don't you think? You read my mind. I was thinking this is a sign of what we will see in November. You bet. You can bet your uh, bottom dollar on it. Uh, and... and the, even though, you, as you mentioned properly, it, it was just a, a slight tap on his wrist, right? Um, but even that yeah. could make a martyr out of someone in the, in the heightened political climate that we're in right now. So he could become a symbol of a kind of resistance where really there is no you know, full-blown resistance taking place, right? Yeah, I, I think it's a final uh, voice yeah, Patricia. Uh, well, uh, uh, Patricia. What I thought was fascinating. We... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the, it was a three-to-one decision by the board, and it was the Democrat who stood up for the MAGA hat because he said, "What? Well, it's just a hat. What's the big deal? Um, I think this is a, uh, an important piece of uh, voter education. Um, mm-hmm. I always knew that you can't stand there with a big MAGA sign and say, vote for Trump. I actually did not know you can't wear campaign hats or shirts or anything like that. And, and not be in violation of Georgia law. So I think it's a good learning opportunity, but it may be lost on some people. Galloway, I can see Democrats having poll watchers grabbing MAGA hats off the heads of voters. <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh about it, but as if we don't have enough troubles with what we're going to face November 3rd, Jim. No, this is kind of kind of remind, it reminds you of the Jacobites over in the French Revolution. You know, you got you got to wear your little little ribbons and your hats. <laughs> oh, Galloway, leave it to Galloway to bring a touch of France into our conversation today. And Jim, you got the last word on today's show. Thank you so much, uh, Kurt Young. It was a real pleasure, a treat to have you here for the first time. Come back and join us again, please. Um, Patricia, you know we always love having you and Audrey Haynes on the show, and I hope to see a lot of you between now and Election Day. Galloway, you're back with me on Friday, and uh, I look forward to that show. Tomorrow we're talking, as I said, going to lay out all of the issues surrounding, or many of the issues surrounding our election upcoming with Mark Nisi and uh, Stephen Fowler. And Tamar Hellerman will be here as well. Should be a good show. Till then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, get a flu shot, for goodness sake. See you tomorrow.